What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The amount of art and cultural heritage that's been looted in Ukraine is truly staggering. And there's really only one surefire way for Ukrainians to get back what's theirs. Win the war. And it's quickly getting more expensive to have one of those allegedly life-prolonging Mediterranean diets. Olive oil has gone through the roof. We ask why. But first... This week, Donald Trump crushed it in Iowa's caucuses, the first bout in the Republican contest for presidential nominee. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. It cemented Mr. Trump's status as the party favorite, and polls suggest he would win in a battle against Joe Biden for the presidency. That rattles a lot of people who fear the effects of a second Trump term on businesses and the American economy. In an interview with Bloomberg, Larry Summers, a pro-Biden former Treasury secretary, revealed his own worries. I think all of this is very threatening to uh, the American economy in the same way that populism, while it sometimes yields temporary and initial economic benefits, it did for Mussolini, it did for Perón in Argentina, ultimately brings a great deal crashing down around it. But not many of the country's business leaders are so willing to speak up. A second Trump presidency could have enormous effects on American business and the economy. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, The Economist's column on global business. Before Trump's first term, corporate America feared the worst... And for a lot of it, the economy actually did better than lots of people, including The Economist, thought it would. However, there is reason to believe that this time Trump 2, as they call it, could be worse than Trump 1. And why is that? What would be different the second time around? The first thing to remember is that economic conditions are quite different now than they were back in 2016 when Trump took office first time. Trumponomics in his first term, was all about things like tax cuts, deficit-funded spending, and raising tariffs. In 2024, the economy doesn't need the kind of inflationary jolts that tax cuts and high tariffs could portend. 
And then there's the policy proposals, which he's kind of loosely floated on the campaign trail. In his first term, though he campaigned on radical policies, he had sort of sensible conservatives in his administration that would rein him in. However, this time he's surrounded by true believers. For example, the pro-MAGA think tank called the Heritage Foundation has produced a 920-page omnibus report of policy proposals, some of which are really quite extreme. And if he's elected again, he could follow through on policies that are likely to harm business in the United States in a way that possibly is stronger than what happened in his first term. Well, I mean, talk us through it. What kind of policies are we talking about here? The first one of most concern, I guess, is a trade war. Trump has a propensity to pull the tariff lever when he can. But this time he's floated the idea of a baseline 10% levy on all imports. And this tariff, he says, would be raised in retaliation for any country that tries to impose a higher tariff. He's talked about this in almost biblical terms. If they charge us, we charge them. An eye for an eye, a tariff for a tariff, same exact amount. The main target here is China. There is the fear that he could use these tariffs to sort of unilaterally terminate trade with China, where a huge amount of American business is still done. But then there's also the concern that this tariff idea could have a ripple effect across many markets and damage important trade treaties, such as that with Mexico and Canada. So the biggest issue, you say, being about trade wars and the like, but what's the next category? There are a few other big concerns. The first is migration and the threat that Mr. Trump has aired regularly on the campaign trail to conduct a historic deportation of undocumented migrants expelling millions of them is, of course, first and foremost, a humanitarian issue. But from a business perspective, there's also the risk that it exacerbates a worker shortage, and particularly in industries like farming, like the hotel industry, like leisure and retail, which rely heavily on low-cost labour they could find themselves really struggling to find workers, which would, of course, push up inflation. Then there's the whole question of government debt. Mr. Trump introduced the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 that slashed corporate tax rates, and businesses absolutely loved that. But neither Mr. Trump nor Mr. Biden have a plan to rein in the deficit. And actually, Mr. Trump appears keener than Mr. Biden to double down on tax cuts, which would increase the deficit. And then if he pursues his most unorthodox economic ideas, the fear is that it would cause such a jolt in the Treasury market that it would push up borrowing costs and potentially weaken the dollar. Well, given all of this is the case, why aren't we seeing more pushback from company bosses who see the danger coming down the pike? The first reason is just a question of timing. There's 10 months to go before the election. These are two relatively elderly men. Trump faces 91 felony counts. Business is taking an understandable wait-and-see approach. 
But also there's worry that standing up against Mr. Trump could provoke a backlash. Trust in big companies has been on a decline in recent decades. And, you know, some business leaders think that actually by standing up against Mr. Trump, they could play into his hands. And I guess it's really important to stress as well that CEOs are not enamoured with the Biden administration either. It's anti-business rhetoric has been pretty strong, especially on antitrust. And though the courts have blocked many of the government's biggest trust-busting efforts, it's still sent a chill through business, through mergers and acquisitions and that sort of thing. So this is what we should expect up through the election season, various bosses being perhaps quite worried, but also remaining pretty quiet. Big business is going to want to keep its head down, but that may be difficult. They only need to think back to the previous Trump administration to remember how some of the more incendiary aspects of his government led to employees demanding that their CEOs take a stand. And customers also wanted companies to show where their brands stood on these big issues. And perhaps they should be more prepared to stand up because big business is quite complacent in a way about how much they rely on America's global influence. Things like the hegemony of the dollar, America's defence of maritime shipping lanes. These have been the underpinnings of a global system that has been of profound importance for the sway of American multinationals over the last many decades. So if anyone is likely to shake corporate America out of this numbness, it's probably Mr. Trump. Thanks very much for joining us, Henry. Thank you, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began in February 2022, the loss of life and suffering in Ukraine has been great. But the cultural damage has been immense as well. Piotr Zalewski has been reporting from Ukraine for The Economist. Museums have been bombed and others have been plundered. In areas they have occupied, Russian forces have taken with them a large part of Ukraine's artistic heritage. Recently, I visited the Regional Museum, an ethnographic museum in Kherson, in southern Ukraine, to speak with its acting director, Olka Goncharova. And she told me that when Russian forces advanced on the city, and this was in the early days of the invasion, she fled. And on her return, which is to say in November 2022, when Ukraine managed to recapture Kherson, she found the museum where she had worked for decades gutted. 
Ці люди, яких ми називаємо колаборанти, це колишня директорка музею, головний бухгалтер. It turned out that Russian officials, assisted by local collaborators, including the museum's then director, had loaded up more than 28,000 artifacts into trucks and driven them off. Gone were the ancient coins, gone were the Greek sculptures, the Scythian jewelry, and gone was the museum's precious Bukhara saber, a saber that once belonged to the emir of Bukhara. Even the hard drives containing the museum's catalogs were taken. Three decades ago, the museum had recovered a collection of Gothic bronzes that had been looted by German occupiers during the Second World War. Now, the new invaders had stolen them too. This is a story that has played out in many parts of Ukraine currently or formerly under Russian occupation. And so, all told, do we have a sense of just how much has been plundered or destroyed? We have a rough idea, but it's hard to say specifically. And the reason is that many Ukrainian museums, especially the smaller provincial museums, used paper catalogs and not digital one. Digitization has been relatively new in Ukrainian museums. And many of these paper catalogs have been destroyed or stolen, along with artwork or archaeological artifacts. Now, Olga says they, you know, were able to piece together evidence of how many artifacts had been stolen, which artifacts had been stolen from documents left behind. But overall, proper accounting will not happen until more documents are recovered. But the Ministry of Culture reckons that more than 480,000 works of art and archaeological artifacts have ended up in Russian hands since the start of the invasion. And when you say it's ended up in Russian hands, is that to say that it's gone to Russia? We don't know for sure. Much of the art remains in territories that are currently occupied by the Russians. Aside from the ethnographic museum, the regional museum in Kherson, the city's art museum was also plundered. And we know for a fact that pretty much all of the works taken from that museum have ended up in Russian-occupied Crimea. The deputy director of the art museum in Kherson said that his staff had seen images of some of the works posted online by the Tavida Museum in Simferopol, which is an occupied Crimea. We actually managed to reach the director of that museum, a known Russian collaborator and someone who is under EU sanctions for his role in the plunder, who confirmed that not only some, but the entire Herson collection, meaning over 10,000 works of art was being held in his museum storage. And he says the works were moved, quote-unquote, for safekeeping. 
So we know for a fact that some of the collections have been moved to Crimea. There's also reason to suspect that others have been moved to Russia proper. And you mentioned also that some of it, rather than just being moved, has in fact been destroyed. Yes, at least 38 museums in Ukraine have been damaged or destroyed during the fighting. The Odessa Museum and the museum in Mariupol are probably the best known examples. Last April, the UN estimated that the cost to Ukraine's cultural heritage as a result of the invasion was $2.6 billion. Now, because this was an estimate that the UN had come up with last April, we can assume that by now it is a rather conservative figure. But I mean, what can be done to return the plundered art to its rightful place or to retain what's, what's left? So... Uh, Ukraine has sent a number of collections to Western Europe, and some museums have put in place emergency protocols whereby they're preparing to evacuate their art to other parts of Ukraine in case of bigger Russian attack. At the same time, prosecutors in Kiev are investigating Russians and Ukrainians involved in the plunder. An official at the Ministry of Culture I met was working on a new restitution law. A special army unit has begun to monitor damage to cultural sites. But as far as the art that has been looted already by the Russians, people in Ukraine will tell you that the best chance they have to recover that art is simply by winning the war. Not only winning back territory, even if Ukraine were to launch a successful offensive in Crimea, and obviously the chances of that are becoming increasingly remote, we're quite sure that Russia will be able to ship those goods being stored in Crimea to mainland Russia. I remember one thing that a Ukrainian archaeologist told me in Kiev. He said, you know, unless the Russians are defeated the way the Germans were defeated in the Second World War, we will not see these artifacts again. Given that a Ukrainian victory, or at least a Ukrainian victory of that kind, is becoming increasingly elusive, there is unfortunately little hope of recovering what the occupiers have stolen. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. In Barcelona, where I'm from, I follow a Mediterranean diet, and we consume a lot of olive oil. Carla Subirana writes for The Economist's digital team. Some of my favorite foods are gambas al ajillo, which is garlic shrimp, or pan con tomate, bread with tomato, or tortilla de patatas, which is a sort of potato omelette. But in the past year, the price of olive oil has shot up completely. Also, its price has spiraled, having a major impact on those who produce the olive oil and, of course, those of us who consume it. In September, prices reached their highest level since records began, rising by 117% year on year, according to the International Monetary Fund. In 2019, it was seven times cheaper than crude oil. Now it's 17 times more. All of my friends and family are talking about it. A couple of friends even got olive oil as a Christmas present this year, something that just last year would have been unthinkable. So what is going on here? Why is olive oil suddenly so much more expensive? 
So the first thing to note is that demand has gone up. Over the past years, more people have begun to understand the benefits of a Mediterranean diet because it's considered one of the healthiest diets in the world. Olive oil has become more common in countries that tend to use less healthier alternatives, such as butter. But rising demand has also coincided with supply shortages. So Spain is the world's biggest producer, and is often called the Saudi Arabia of olive oil because it accounts for half of the world production. And Italy and Greece are also big producers. But climate change is affecting these countries particularly badly. Over the past years, they've often suffered heat waves, droughts, and other sorts of extreme climate events. Back in Barcelona, my family actually produces olive oil on a very small scale. And last year, the harvest was so bad that we didn't even pick olives from our trees. I spoke to an olive tree farmer who lives nearby, and he was also very disappointed and worried by the harvest. He says his harvest was about 60 to 90 percent smaller and that it's a catastrophe. And here he's telling me that if it doesn't rain this year, some of his trees will die. So really, this is a lot to do with either too much rainfall or not enough rainfall at the right time of year. Yes, so last season was particularly bad. Spain had an unusually hot spring. In April, some of the regions in the south, where most of the trees are planted, were five degrees warmer than usual. So a lot of olive groves didn't bloom. And then things got even worse in the summer. The environmental ministry said that one third of the country suffered a prolonged drought in June. So this damaged the few olive trees that had managed to flower. In Italy, the temperatures were also really hot. And then to make matters worse, a bacterium called Chilella fastidiosa killed a lot of trees. And this bacterium is spread by insects and has killed around 21 million trees since 2008. So climate change doesn't actually directly cause this disease, but experts think that extreme climate events is making the trees more vulnerable. So because of all these factors, in the European Union, production fell by around 40% last year. So the reduced supply pushed up prices. But it's important to say that it's not just environmental factors that are pushing up prices. Why? What else is at play? Well, there are two other factors. The first is that high interest rates and higher fertilizer costs squeeze farmers' margins. And then the second factor is that Turkey, one of the few countries that did enjoy a good harvest last year, banned the export of olive oil to bring down prices at home. So that kept prices stable in Turkey, but it drove them up in the rest of the world because it reduced global supply even more. And what about back at home for you? You said things are so bad that people are actually getting olive oil as a luxury Christmas gift now. Yes, so given the importance of olive oil to the Mediterranean diet, the price spikes have caused panic, and politicians often talk about this. The government, for example, recently scrapped VAT in olive oil products until June to try to bring the prices down. But some of the responses have been even more drastic. Last year, Spain witnessed a spate of olive oil heists. For example, in August, some thieves stole half a million worth of olive oil from a warehouse in Córdoba in the south of Spain. And the country's authorities removed 11 brands of olive oil from supermarket shelves after it emerged that they were low quality and basically unfit for human consumption. And we talk a lot on the show about how extreme climate events are only going to become more common. So I hesitate to ask this, but how's this year looking so far? 
Yeah, it's not looking good, Jason. Last September, rain ravaged olive trees in Puglia, in the south of Italy, and Spain is in the midst of another drought. According to Spain's Agriculture Ministry, production this year will be a third lower than the previous four-year average. So thousands of salads may once again go undressed. Carla, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.